Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics in bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Philosophy is everything. Art, science, religion, or deciding whether or not to eat a second donut are all things guided by philosophy. This show will discuss the big, overarching philosophical topics, but we'll also have the personal conversations about things that we all wonder about. Each episode, I will introduce a major topic in philosophy and give a brief introduction before interviewing Norm about the details behind the idea. We'll then spend the majority of each episode discussing a philosophical question related to the topic we just covered. This week will be a little different, because instead of discussing one topic, we're going to give you an overview of the discipline of philosophy and its component parts. Like much in philosophy, there isn't a firm consensus on what those parts are, but for the purpose of our conversation, we'll be looking at metaphysics, epistemology, axiology, and logic. All right, Norm, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to be working on the project after, you know, so much planning and whatnot. Is there anything you want to start out with before we dive into looking at some of these topics? Only that, uh, the first, I'm going to thank you again for the opportunity to do this. Second, this isn't intended to be a college lecture, and so if I start to sound that way, you can tell me, hush, uh, because uh, podcasting is new to me, and I'd like to have conversations that maybe my students or friends or family or whomever uh, could know something more about where my head has been. Right. <laughs> well, podcasting's, you know, new to both of us. And I think that that's, you know, something that makes it, you know, worthwhile is that, you know, philosophy is about, you know, looking at the thought process behind what things are being done. You know, it's not so much about what's happening as what's the reasoning behind it, you know. And uh, writers who try to pull philosophy together say that philosophy is not about ancient history or historiography. It is, it is about uh, sets of processes uh, by which we look into the world. So it makes it very updated, even if you're talking about Plato or someone. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably one of the bigger misconceptions about philosophy is, you know, people think about a philosophy class and I think you're going to be talking about a bunch of dusty books and guys with huge beards, you know, and that's, that's really not the case. You know, it's, it's, like I said, it's about everything you do, you know, deciding to eat a second donut really can depend on your whole philosophy behind, you know, dieting or exercise or whatever, you know. That's sounding really good right now, a second yeah. donut. So that's a <laughs> We should probably put an end to that that tangent before I get any hungry. But yeah, so let's start out with our first topic, which is metaphysics. You want to give a kind of a brief description of what metaphysics is and what kind of things it, in, it entails? Sure. So uh, first, uh, to dislodge a, a very old misconception about it, uh, people for sometimes, a lot of people still do think that metaphysics was uh, primarily about all the things that we can't see. Actually, the word itself in Greek came from the fact that this section of philosophy followed physics. So it was uh, essentially in Aristotle's writing, and the, the, this was the next chapter after physics. So meta means after or beyond. And, and so it has this kind of uh, etymology, the, this word history that sort of de-emphasizes things. So 
among other things, it's about um, how we come to terms with reality. Uh, what is reality? What is time? What is space? You can get into all kinds of quantum things and the quantum physicists cross into the metaphysical zone all the time, but it's really about, it's not so much about the imaginary, it's about the physical or about the potentially physical, even so things that we can observe through telescopes, things that we can conceptualize, or I say we, I'm not a STEM, but, <laughs> but mine's much better than I can conceptualize and give wonky names to things like quarks and bosons and so on. Um, and some things are found, some things are theoretical, but it's still primarily about the reality the, the, that we encounter. So there's a lot of topics that are covered by metaphysics. As a matter of fact, almost anything you can possibly imagine is covered by metaphysics and epistemology from sort of different angles. But since it's my podcast and I can kind of take things wherever I want, yeah. <laughs> we, we're just going to cover a couple of them as examples. And, you know, they're always going to be my favorites because, it, like I said, I kind of get to guide the conversation. But so one of the biggest things in metaphysics is cosmology you know it's kind of that and it's always going to be something in the philosophical realm because there's lots of things that as science has progressed things move out of the realm of philosophy and into the realm of science you can you can never really prove anything in science but you can disprove a lot of stuff and you can find supporting arguments for um theories and as those things become more concrete you you tend to form a picture of all right well this now isn't something we have to speculate or create arguments or rational ideas. Well, keep, keep in mind that the, the, the natural, natural philosophy is it's kind of the cauldron for, you, you're right, it's a, the philosophy is a cauldron for everything. There, there wasn't science, so-called. There was natural philosophy when the pre-Socratics, Heraclitus, Heraclitus says, you can't step into the same river twice. So he stands and he observes water and, and he makes this somewhat profound statement that people are still chewing on. My students now go after that in class. Well, wait a minute. I think maybe I can stand in the same river twice. Oh, well, how? And, and so the whole point of the question is, what's existence from moment to moment to moment? So natural philosophy was the, the broad term before science. Uh, so yes, you're right. And, and also, I mean, I think that it's kind of where it's the intersection of science and art as well. You know, not as only is it, proto-science, you know, it's something that comes before science, but it's also where science and art kind of meet in the ingenuity of human reason, you know, it's that. Because when he said that, we're still asking the same question today, you know, there's still physicists, I was reading an article a little while back about how, you know, you look at water and it, it's wet, and then, but if you look at a molecule of water, it's not, it's not wet, so what gives the water the property of being wet? You know, and that's still a question we're thinking about today, you know, and thousands of years later. You know? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so cosmology is the study of the universe. And like I was saying, that's something that, although is, is scientific, you know, by all means nowadays, there's a lot of very highly regarded astrophysicists and cosmologists and, and there's a lot of knowledge there, but. And the, the only reason there's a lot of knowledge there is because systems in outer space tend to be much more simplistic than systems here on Earth. You know, because 
in the absence of an atmosphere or some of these other things, you can say if something's traveling in a straight line, it's going to travel in a straight line until something obstructs it. Whereas here on Earth, you know, you can't predict which way the wind's going to blow in five minutes. So trying to predict how things are going to act, it's November 10th and we have a blizzard outside. You know, nobody was, <laughs> that's not something somebody could predict a week ago, you know, much less farther than that. Whereas now we can look back and say, 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years ago was the beginning of the universe. And that's... As far as we know now. Of right. course, and, and that is inductively, of course, has, has extended. When I was a kid, it wasn't that old. And there weren't nearly... The, the guesses about the number of galaxies were so minuscule compared to right. what we know now. So, yes, yeah, so it keeps... And that's, that's all based on, you know... um sort of rational arguments and then as observation fills in some of the gaps you realize oh well these these stars are much older than they're supposed to be that's how they end up finding it out the the age was because they found these stars and globular clusters that were much older than the universe and then you have a problem with your model and you have to start over again you know the same thing with with galaxies you know they had you know hubble not the telescope but the actual man looked out into space and he sees all of these galaxies, all these things traveling away from us, and you're like, oh, well, then things must be expanding, things must be old, and all this stuff fills in, but the point is that no matter how much of the, uh, I'll put facts in quotes, no matter how much of the facts we end up filling in, we can never extend beyond the bounds of our sensory perceptions, and even that's not technically true because we have you phenomenologists you <laughs> you know we have gravitational waves which are kind of breaking science and what they're discovering is that all right well we can't look past the cosmic microwave background so we can't see anything be you know within 100,000 years of the big bang but now what they're finding out is well gravity probably extends beyond that so we can actually use gravitational waves to figure out what happened beyond that but we're always trying to figure out where things began, how they began. See, that, that's, that's one of the primal metaphysical questions, the origins. But even if we figured that out, right, and even if we figure that out, we can't go beyond the beginning. And that's that, <laughs> from nothing to nowhere. From no, exactly. And so that's, that's sort of why cosmology in some form is always going to be philosophy as opposed to, to science. It's about borders. See, this is the thing, and, and you led into that very nicely. But I, I like the title anyway. It, so we we learn things inductively. We get new information, our, which gives the if it's strongly uh, inductive, then the conclusion is probably going to change based on that new information. Or rather, the information we have is if it's strong, if there's a possibility the conclusion will change. Not absolutely, but it could, and then it does, and then. It, and so then we start talking about these things, but then you brought up art, like aesthetics and a branch of philosophy, which isn't, there's not a hard and fast, there's not a wall between these. It's rather an osmotic kind of border where depending on the question you ask, suddenly you find yourself over in two other parts of the Venn diagram, and which is what I, when I'm talking with my st students, I like, uh, and if any of them are listening at any particular point to this, that's the joy of this, because I don't teach philosophy primarily from the ancient history to the present, 
one, because I have this thing where when I was in junior and senior high school, we, we, you know, we were living in the Vietnam era, but we never quite got up there with our history studies. It was always like we were way behind where we went and, and, and I didn't want to do that to students. I'm just let's just jump into the water. What are the big questions of philosophy? What are the categories of philosophy? And then, well, okay, you want some background, you want some foundational knowledge, but you can do a bit of foundational knowledge on Socrates. And then suddenly find yourself talking about language. So now you're up into the 20th century, 20th century with Richard Rorty or, or Noam Chomsky into the 21st. He's still talking out there. And then you pop back again. So it's very recursive. Go forward, move back, pull things in. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the nature of it is, um, like we were saying at the beginning, it's the, it's the thinking process behind the ideas, not so much the ideas themselves. Because like you're saying, as you, you follow that process, you're going to find yourself in all different areas of everything, you know. And that, some of that kind of leads us into the next topic, um, which is ontology, another part of meso- metaphysics. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of is that when I'm sure we'll talk about this in our next episode about, about God, but um, a lot of religious people will um, justify belief by using general revelation, which is to use a, to kind of simplify the concept, looking at, looking at creation, you have to admit that it's art, you know, like, so you, you're, you're, you have to admit that there's a design of some kind, like, do you? Right. And you see, and that's, and that's where a philosophical debate comes in because somebody can say, yeah, you're absolutely right because, you know, not even our greatest artist could recreate, you know, the, the smallest living thing. But on the other hand, you have somebody who's going to say, well, guess what? We're just tiny beings with three pounds of meat inside our head on a dirt ball in space. You know, we don't know. We'd like to think that we know enough to say that this has to be by design, but maybe nature's chaos is on such a grand complex level that something like this could happen on its own, you know? So ontology is what exists in what categories and, you know, with what meaning it has. What do you have for us on ontology? Well, okay. So you got, you, 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 you started out well. So it's a study of being, it's a study of existence. It's, uh, it's, It is classifying and defining entities and, and discrete entities. It is, and that, that spills us over in epistemology, which we'll get to. Um, it's, it's, what are things and how do they change? And so that's why it's part of, part of metaphysics. And so when you say being, you know, it, it's, it's, so, it's so vague, right? It's the study of being, the study of existence. Well, we could sit here and say we exist, don't we? And we have being. Well, how do we know that we have, what does being mean? What do you think being means? Right. And then, you know, some of the things that we take for granted and that seem so day to day are the biggest mysteries in the universe. Consciousness, language, knowledge. All these things are, you know, just like being. It's just, what is, you know, it's one of those things where you take it for granted. Then we stop to think about what does this, what does this even mean? 
your concept starts to fall apart. And that's, that's sort of a, a pattern that's uh, replicated throughout nature. You know, you look at things on the smallest scales and things make sense and things make sense. And you get down to a level where you don't know what's making things up anymore. Or you look at bigger levels and you realize, man, well, you look at a black hole and then all the a singularity shouldn't exist, but here it is. You know, like at, at some level, if you look into things deep enough, they just cease to make sense, you know, and they become the, you know, there was for all the, the, the humor that people got out of this back in the, um, in the Bush, second Bush era, um, there was a speech. Not that he did, but one of his, one of his associates. And he was laying out for people. It, it was, it was pre Iraq war. And, and he was essentially being philosophical. And I'm not sure how clear he was that he was doing it, but, uh, he was talking about, we have known knowns. We have, uh, known unknowns. And I, I went and I often hear young people say to me, wait, 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 how do you get right? Well, we'll get to that. And then we have unknown unknowns. The, the things we don't know that we don't know that, that can exist. And so I'm going to give uh, the unnamed person credit for having brought that up because a lot of people thought it was just foolishness, but underneath it, there's very much an ontological class, uh, classification going on. Yeah, and it's, in some cases, it's easier to know, you know, it's easier to know things that are farther removed from our experience than it is to know things that are in, intrinsic or integral to being human, you know. It's, it's easy to study things, yeah, it's easy to, it's easy to study things that are outside and, and to th think that you know them, but that's going to be an entirely different thing as well, because as you look into sensory um, perception, what you realize is that what the real world isn't actually the real world. You know, we see a very small sliver of the visual light spectrum. We hear a very small sliver of the audio frequencies and whatnot. So the world actually isn't what we perceive at all. But how we make sense of outside objects tends to agree among most individuals who have developed normally. Which spills us into, you know, what's coming, epistemology. Yeah. Because how do we know Yes. What does it mean to know? You know, so ontology is being. So ontology is, is bless Shakespeare. Ontology is to be or not to be. That's an ontological question that Hamlet asks. To be or not to be, as if there's a choice. Well, if there's a choice, then there are things leading to that choice. And that's partly a metaphysical uh, consideration. Um, but whether it is nobler and so on and so forth is sort of, well, how do I know whether it's better to do this or to do that? We're getting into the epistemological. Yeah, and, and this is something we're going to cover with our last question of the show, which is, um, you know, how do, how do categories of philosophy relate to making, to making us human or making us think about how it makes us human? And uh, I'll tip my hand a little bit, which is one of the points that I, that I think of is um, part of it is categorizing is, is being human, you know. And we'd like to, I think that it's sort of a, um, a psychological safety net that when we create a category that now it's a real thing and before it wasn't a real thing. But the fact is, 
scientists and professionals in the fields are still, you know, struggle with the same things. You know, like you look at my favorite, my favorite things to look at are these organisms that are definitely alive, but between animal and plant. You know, you look at some deep sea, uh, you know, anemones or, you know, some lichens or things and, and scientists go, I don't know what this thing is. You know, it's, it's alive, but it's not a plant or an animal. Or we don't know if it's alive. Maybe it is, you know, it's, those are the things that, that make things kind of so interesting. We'll and, name it, we'll classify it, and we'll start to let it accrue characteristics that we phenomenologically have observed in one way or another, measured empirically, uh, thus stacking up premises or facts. So again, so we go from epistemology to ontology to, to metaphysics, logic, which is another category of, of, and, and, uh, and then aesthetics. Well, is this, is this thing that might be part of whatever the creature is? Is it beautiful? And someone might look at a tardigrade, uh, the, the creatures, one of those deep, deep, uh, pot vent creatures in the ocean and, say, who no, that's not beautiful. That has like little suckers on it. But, well, but aesthetics says, well, what are our rubrics? What are our principles? Do we, do we just intuitively know when something's beautiful? Is that culturally driven? Is, is, can something be beautiful even though its exterior might be off-putting? Is it beautiful because it's, it has an elegance of connectivity? Is it, is it beautiful because of the way it moves through the world? Yeah, and a tardigrade is a perfect example because lots of lots of there's a lot of examples in different categories as well where you can look at something and it seems like the more advanced or elegant something becomes, the more fragile it becomes. You know, if you buy a, a two hundred thousand dollars sports car, you have to put just the right oil and gas in it, or the thing is going to blow up. Whereas if you go simpler, yeah, maybe this thing isn't elegant or beautiful, or it's not as able to do one specific thing as well as something else. But the, the ability to do many things at a basic level increases. And a tardigrade is a perfect example of that. They've launched the things into space. They've launched the things into volcanoes. What they find out is these things will dry out into glass and then they will turn back into creatures or, you know, they'll, they'll soak up. You, you can't kill them. You cannot kill a tardigrade. So the thing is specialized to survive. You know, it's not going to engage in a philosophy podcast, you know, but. It's going to live and it's going to outlive us and everything else, you know, so that sort of utility, um, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting. Well, yes, it is. And what you just said about utility, because if there is a kind of, there is not a kind of, it's an aesthetic consideration when, all right, so we have these phones that we all carry around, but the kinds of cases we put on them have some kind of design. Um, and then we have ergonomic designs for the phones, for our keyboards, so we make our, our wrists better, or for the way a mouse, the shape of a mouse, so that we can move it better, or whatever it happens to be. So ergonomics is part of aesthetics, but it has a utility. We want to make the, the tool more useful by making it easier for us to use and more attractive by being visually or, 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 or physically, tactilely, uh, able to be manipulated and enjoyed. And this, 
this makes me think it's an extremely Eastern way of thinking. Like Japanese car makers think about this sort of thing. It, it, it's almost kind of like a checklist of philosophy. Why does this thing exist? Like, should we have this? If we should have it, why should we have it? If we do have it, what purpose is it going to serve? And if it serves a purpose, how should it look? You know, it's, it's all part of, you know, a design is, you know, a design is all parts of philosophy. Science, as we just talked about, you know, is all, is an ontological philosophy by itself. You know, you know, it's just everything about it is, you know, connecting. So, um, let's move on to epistemology. So give us, uh, give us some background on how we know what we just talked about. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do we know? Well, you, you have had all kinds of experiences of you build things. Right. Okay. So you have a design in mind. All right. <clears throat> now, what tools? Let's pick something you're going to build. Okay. I built that guitar. And you, and, and you see, uh, aesthetically, we might say you, you created the guitar or you, you built it. A guitar is a tool. Yeah. What is it a tool for? It's a tool for making music. Okay. So now, how do we know that that's a guitar? What are the qualities that we can discern that, that separate it from other things? We're going from ontological to epistemology, right? Okay. So. It's essence. Yes. What's the essence of guitar? Essence. The essence of the guitar is um, six strings um, and some sort of surface to vibrate to um, channel the vibration of the strings and produce a sound. And then not necessarily a specific tuning because you can have different tunings for a guitar, but um, a tuning that harmonizes amongst all six strings. So if you have a tuning, six strings, and some surface to project that sound, you probably have something that resembles a guitar. Okay, that's an excellent start. So how do we know that it vibrates? Well, uh, I can use visual. You know, I can see the strings vibrating. I can use, uh, you know, I can hear the tones that are being made. You can have your hand on the body uh, and feel it. Okay. So that's epistemological. Uh, it's now there are, there are people who question the nature of reality itself, of course, and say, well, that, you know, we go back to this. Uh, how do I know anything? But if we're staying in the, the, not the deepest water for the moment. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. How, how do, how do we know? Well, we know by measuring, we know by, phenomenologically the sensory experiences she said before we we know because in mutual observations would establish that it's a fact um, it, i see the guitar you see the guitar unless somebody's fooling with our minds the guitar is there you see the guitar at a slightly different angles than i do and thus you probably see different details of it than i do so combining our observations might yield more details about the guitar all right so that kind of covers skepticism, which is, you know, how do we know anything outside our mind? And it really doesn't cover skepticism because <laughs> skepticism is, you know, saying, you know, let's be cautious. Skepticism, if it's not extreme skepticism, is saying, let's be cautious. Let's question how we think we know. That's enough to start. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the biggest, um, you know, relatively new sort of thought behind that is what, how do we not 
how do we know that this whole thing isn't a computer simulation, you know? And that brings us into the next part of epistemology that I wanted to cover, which was um, language in the mind and, um, you know, consciousness and how language is related. And this is going to be really hard not to overdo it because I would like to do an entire episode on just this topic because there's so much here. And we can. And yeah, okay. Well, and if you say we can, then we will because... Uh, we, we absolutely should. It's one of my favorite topics. So that's- that, that wasn't one of the ones we had on the list, but we're putting it on the list right now. Okay. But yeah, give us briefly, um, you know, something about consciousness and, and language as it, replace, as it relates to epistemology. Okay, so we'll start, I'll, I'll bounce back and forth a little bit, but, but really briefly. So we, in our current time, the, the late 20th century up into the, now the 21st, there were people who were saying, well, in the, and for a long time across history, people trusted words. A word meant what it said it was. You have a definition or a, a, a set of definitions for a word. We use the word. Um, and, and there's some solidity to that and some trustworthiness. But we, but we move into the modern or postmodern age and then into deconstructivism, deconstructionism. And there's a, a beginning to question conceptually the idea of what a word means. And the, and the question is not just about the word, but it takes us to the process. So we can conceptualize something in our minds. How many times have I heard people say, and I've said it myself, I know what I want to say, but I just don't know how to say it. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? There's something in the noggin that wants to be out, that claims that it knows something. Well, there's a number of questions there. The it that knows in there is not the it that the, the I that is saying something. Or if I say, I know what I want to say, but I can't, something impeding it. And if it's not a medical or other kind of issue, then it's, it's the concept is vague. Yeah. In, in co-it, it is, it, it's something, it's nebulous. But we, let's say we arrive at formulating something about that concept. We have, we, we somehow put it out here in words in, uh, through a microphone or on paper or on screen. And we say, we read that sentence that we've put out there. So let's take something like this. Let's bounce back and forth a minute. So there's any concept you want to choose. How about this? How about love? Can we define it in one sentence? Oh, man. Well, there's, there's so many different kinds of love. There you are. So now what are we doing? So now we're already differentiating about, you know, we're taking one concept and we're breaking it down into different parts. So yes, linguistically, epistemologically, we're examining, well, we know that there are different kinds of love. Well, how do we know that? Because we experience them? Right. Yeah. And, we, and, and how do we know that? That's reinforced by reading about the experiences of others. Mm-hmm. The definitions are extended, categories are multiplied. And so if uh, someone says to someone, um, let's say we're on, on stage and a character says, I love this. Well, what's the other word that needs to be defined in that three sentence word sentence? I love this. All of them. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. 
I exactly, and, and and there's your ontological component, which also has to do with I, I, identity, right? And that takes us to consciousness. If I'm aware of an I, I know this is good. You know, that's, it always gets to be so much fun. I do love this. Uh, if there's an I, I mean, Daniel Dennett, among many other people, uh, has questioned the the idea of the I that there's well. It's an illusion of, in a sense, the ghost in the machine. Some some folks have suggested homunculus, right? Is that the term? One of the terms. So so okay. So we'll back up. I love this. I needs to be defined. Love needs to be defined. This. What's what? What needs to be defined about this? It's a pronoun, a relative pronoun. What is? Well, I guess without without actually being there, we don't have any sort of sensory information on what the character is referring to. And even if we are there, we might not have an absolute sense of what the character is referring to. Suppose two people are having an argument on stage, and and there's some pacing going on, and one of the characters says, "I love this." Well, it might be that he loves the idea of argument. It might be that he's being sarcastic. I love this. It might be, you know, it's so it's, it's inflection. So now we've added another category of, of interpretive possibilities. And, and so language, so the language philosophers uh, debate about many things. And, and one is what's, are, are the words distinct from us? Do these concepts exist whether we recognize that they exist or not? And then once we get into the, the apparatus, so to speak, how does the apparatus of the mind, the consciousness, the cognitive ability, get, get the words out there? And then why do we find words not trustworthy? Well, because they can mean so many things. Um, in a class, uh, I had a student who was complaining about the word down. And she said, why does it have so many definitions? And I said, well, let's look at some of the definitions. So let's see. If I say I'm down, what do you assume? You're having an emotional low. Okay. So down is the opposite of up. So de denotatively, dictionary definition, down would indicate lowness or closer to a surface. Right. And then we say I'm down with that. So you're, you're close to that. Okay. Okay. So there's a relations, but it doesn't mean exactly the same thing, right? And, and, on, and, and there were so many more that we talked about. That was one. And then, and then one of my Japanese students said, is a student said, oh, that's just English. One of them said, it's just English. It's English. And I said, no. Uh, so I asked one of the, my student, other students, she's from Japan. I said, is there any word uh, that has multiple meanings? And she said, hashi. Hashi means edge. It means bridge. And it means chopsticks. Now you can, you can search for relationships among those concepts, hoping to somehow put them all completely together. You're not going to find it, but you can, but you can find associations. Uh, the word pagan. What do we, what is associated with that word now? Um, essentially somebody who has, um, I don't know, I guess eclectic religious values outside of the norm or, um, even like sacrilegious to an extent. Yes. Okay. So good. All right. So the etymology, the word history of pagan, if you dive back into it, uh, one of the explanations of it is, is just delightful to me. So when Roman, when the Roman empire was out overstretching itself, when more and more legions were needed, 
this is ultra simplistic, but essentially, they they were conscripting people. They went to conscript people. They were conscripting farmers and uh, people that that they found very undisciplined. Well, as somebody who's had experience, you know, about discipline and not. So, and they started referring to these undisciplined rednecks <laughs> in whatever country they were in, right? But as pagans. So it has nothing to do with a religious component or an, an a religious or an insulting, a blasphemous, heretical component. But it was used as a... But over time, that's the way it evolved. And that's the thing about language that's extremely fascinating is that on one level, it's such a crude tool. Like we were saying before, you can conceptualize things in your mind and you really can't think of any words that can come close to expressing what it is that you're cognitively processing. Well, it might come close, but it's not going to be. Right. But then on the other hand, you, it, language itself is layered with complexity to such an extent that you can say the same thing and it can mean something totally different. You know, I'm, the, the class I'm taking right now is um, for exceptional learners. And I like the new term that they're using for that, which is neurodiverse, neurodiverse learners, because a lot of these kids are just as smart, if not smarter than regular people. But the way that they process things or the way that they channel that comes across as diverse from, a, you know, a more mainstream um, student. Yes. So the, the chapter I just actually just read it this morning and took a test on it was autism. And one of the things with autism is that there's, there, they think there's a, a problem with what they call mirror neurons, which is the part of the brain where you watch somebody do something and then you interpret that as you're able to learn by watching them do it. You can learn how to do it yourself. And um, that's your, your example with the language was the, was the perfect thing. The inflection, you can say the exact same thing, but if you have a different inflection, then it means something totally different. We've all done a reading a book. You're reading dialogue in a book and a character says something and you think, oh, I was out of place. But then you read the next sentence and you realize, oh, there was sarcasm involved or there was something else happening. And so, you know, not only is language an extremely crude tool that can't express everything that we think, but it's also such a sophisticated tool that it can express much more than we can possibly imagine. And not just through language, but using all sort of aspects and facets of human um, body language or um, context or all kinds of different things. Yes, yes. So at one of the same time, it's, it's crude and it's sophisticated. So there's almost a paradoxical nature of it. And what you just described, reading a book. How many different layers of translations are we going through? Mm. Um, not, not even mentioning, well, to mention, if somebody is writing in a different language that's being translated for us, um, which many of the, the philosophers were. But, but we, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're putting our fingers or our eyes or our ears, if you're reading, uh, uh, you know, and it is called reading a book now when you listen to a book. Mm. Uh, it's being referred to that way. So, in whatever way one, sen- one senses are reading a book, ultimately what's still happening is we're encountering graphemes, ph- phonemes, we're, we're encountering elements, particles of constructs. Uh, 
on a page, black and white, unless it's uh, multiple color, but uh, let's go with the black and white for a moment. And, and we see a word, the, well, we hear the sound. We've learned to associate a sound with by itself. It doesn't do much, but it does point to a definite suggestion of a definite, it's going to be a definite article. That is a definite article. There's going to be an object that it refers to, the something. And we anticipate that even when we're starting to read, but we're translating essentially these symbols. And symbols can be taken in a number of ways. And so the, what you're talking about with the learning, uh, whether it's exceptionalities, um, uh, neurodiverse is a marvelous term. I like this term because it has uh, almost a value neutral. It, it, it depoliticizes, it, it, de, uh, it, it emphasizes the idea of, of a superiority or an inferiority. Uh, well, language is diverse. And, and more of the language people who say, let us look at not just intent of language, let us look at the multiple ways in which it seems to be uncertain, this crudity that you were talking about. Uh, or we read a poem. And we can take something from it, we can be stunned by it, we can be mystified by it, but we can be absolutely sure that we don't know every single thing that that poem might mean. It's a shape-shifting entity. And not, not necessarily that it can mean everything in the world, but it has a range of possibilities. Or we read a poem, and we can take something from it, we can be stunned by it, we can be mystified by it, but we can be absolutely sure that we don't know every single thing that that poem might mean. It's a shape-shifting entity. And not, not necessarily that it can mean everything in the world, but it has a range of possibilities. Yeah, and I think that this comes back to, you know, it again mirrors, it's, it's art imitating nature in the regards of what, we're, what I was saying before, where, you know, you can go down past atoms into the quantum foam and it doesn't make sense. And you can go into like black hole singularities at the, the giant level and it doesn't make sense. Well, it's the same thing with words. You look at the symbols or even the by itself and you think, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like, how does this, how is this language, how does this relay an idea? And you can look at a finished work and think, well, how, how does, how can I possibly grasp the meaning of this? Because it was written by one person and trying to interpret even one sentence. Is this sarcastic or is this literal? Much less an entire work. You know, what was being said here? That's kind of where the mysteries of philosophy always lay. Everything is philosophy, but especially at that very early level or the very small level and the very large overarching level, those are those, those are the bookends where things get real interesting and where it's really needed. You know, okay, you can have science and art in the middle and they can take care of that, but philosophy is those bookends, those small or the big things. And it's a pattern that just repeats in every, every kind of um, area, which is a good it was a good segue into axiology, which is um, value systems. You know, how do we determine um, what kind of things have value? And that's why the small and the large, why we have issues with them is because we don't have a measurable way of establishing values. You know, we, we run out of mathematical terms or um, lingual terms to interpret these symbols or these different these different things. Well, in fact, some uh, a, a few not a few philosophers tried to render values in the sense of what we treasure or what we think is right or so on into mathematical terms, 
with the hope, with the, the goal of if we can just render it mathematically, then we'll know exactly what's right and what's wrong. Mm. But we can't. Right. It, it changes. So ethics. So you're, you're leading us into talking yeah. about ethics. Okay. All right. So a lot of people associate the word ethics and morality, and they sort of use them interchangeably. And there are a number of philosophers who do this. Some, however, studying philosophy itself suggests that ethics is a larger umbrella, a larger arc under which a more specific set of rules from different places show up. So, so ethics might ask, what is the good life? How do we consistently uh, aim toward our best selves? And, and uh, mor- morality would say, well, Let's see, here we have this set of rules that we've agreed to, or here we have these set of principles of the golden rule, the golden mean, right? The golden, treat others as you would have yourself be treated, which you can find elements of in many cultures. So, but that's a specific axiom, or rather, yeah, a specific rule um, or principle, whereas the larger question of of ethics uh, embraces that and much else. Mm. And ethics, I mean, that has a lot to do with epistemology because then you're asking how, and this is something I think about a lot, especially looking at, at natural systems. You know, I got, you look at nature and you see, um, for instance, like spiders, you know, and you see like, uh, there's a lot of spider species that engage in metrigraphy where the female spider lays a bunch of spider babies and then she essentially calls the spider babies to come eat her alive so that they can survive. And we think, well, that seems, that doesn't seem right. Something about that seems wrong. And we think, I think we'd, we'd immediately justify, well, that's a lower form of life. A, something, a, a mammal would never do that. But then we have examples of, um, I know specifically rabbits, but also I think bears have been shown to do it, where the, uh, they'll have a child, you know, a, a baby. And, um, and I know I've, I read the study with rabbits where, it didn't have anything to do with a nutritional defici- deficiency or a environmental circumstance of it being a hard winter or anything. There's just certain periods in time and certain genetic factors that will lead a rabbit to occasionally eat all of its babies. Okay, well, a rabbit is still far removed from a human, but it raises though it raises the question when you're thinking about the thought process behind why things happen as opposed to why things happen. Makes you wonder. I, my brother brought me a, a book probably a dozen years ago called "What's Wrong with Eating People," you know, and that's that's a that's a question I love broaching at lunchtime with people <laughs> before they've eaten, of course. You know, what's 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 the matter with it? And lots of people say, "Well, I would never do this, that, or the other thing." But if you start to strip back some of the layers, say, "Okay, well, we're not saying that you have to kill a person." We're not saying that you have to see them butchered. We're not saying, basically when you boil it down, if a human came to you prepared the way an animal does, you know, if, if you were sitting in a restaurant and somebody passed you a, a cut of meat and said, this is a person, what makes it wrong to eat that cut of meat? As what makes it taboo? Right. As opposed to a, a, a cow or a dog, you know, because some people would say it's wrong to eat a dog. Other parts of the world, that's a normal thing. You know, and this is, this is kind of the heart of it, of an ethics question is, 
How do we behave? Right. You, you come to accept these things because they are culturally, um, you know, ingrained in you from, uh, from a young age. But when you start to think about the process behind it, and especially when you start to observe in nature the course that things take in different species or in different things, it raises the question, well, why? What is, what is good or bad or, you know, right or wrong? It's, that's Which is where a lot of people will start to tread into that very dense forest and say, this is Mirkwood out of Lord of the Rings. You know, this is, there are large spiders in there and I'm going to just walk around the forest, right? But, but it's actually a fascinating forest to walk into because it does cause us by degrees. Uh, as it should. You don't have to dwell on the, you know, the topic all the time, but it causes us to think about our humanity. We say we're humans. Being human means thinking about what we do. Human beings do things. All you have to do is take being human and put being first. Being human means examining the things that are done. Even after the fact, or perhaps as one is doing it. Thus, we ascribe the term amoral to people who seem, uh, whether for mental health reasons or any number of reasons, unable to discern that something might be wrong. Right. And I mean, that raises the whole can of worms in itself is that, you know, if people like to ascribe being, you know, right or wrong to being something that is not a human construction, you know, whether it's for religious reasons or for, you know, other philosophical reasons, you know, that that doesn't negate the fact that people, you know, being a, a psychopath, that's actually a diagnosable mental illness. That is, you know, that is in the book. There are people that have it. Are these people not human? No, nobody's going to say that they're not human. But that creates a, a new question of, well, how do we know that right or wrong is something that is something other than a human conception, something that actually exists at the core level? And some people would say, and we would argue with them because the easier route is to say, well, they're animals. Well, first, that's, that's tossing in an We're all animals. The human animal, mm -hmm. we're part of it. Um, so it's not really saying anything. All of the implication is to somehow deride something. So really? So do we, why do we call somebody an animal? What do we really mean by that? You're acting not human. Well, what if being human means having illnesses? And so some people just want to walk away from that. And, and you don't have to say, yeah, psychopathic people or, or, uh, or, or if we, if we ratchet it down and say, most of us have issues of one kind or another, whether they're uh, the mental health issues. It's not a, and most of us get cold. Right. And, and we're finally getting into that category or, or that, that way of dialoguing about things where enough people have been telling us from the medical world, you wouldn't look down on somebody for having a broken arm and going into a hospital. But suddenly people want to go in and get counseling and the whole orientation changes and it shouldn't. Right. right? Uh, so, but that's an ethical thing. It's as part of an ethical changing norm so that we become more accepting as, as we learn more. So epistemology tells us about being, as we know more about our being, then we change our ethics toward behaviors. And it really does require examining every argument that comes up because 
you know, because like you said, we can't just dismiss the people out of hand that say psychopaths are animals. That is a, that's a viewpoint. There are people that think that. And you have to put yourself in those shoes and, th- and think, why is this line of reasoning, not so much why is it flawed, that's the point that you're trying to make, but you have to say, what are the, what would cause somebody to believe this? Yeah, what are, what are the, what would cause somebody to believe this? What are the, the merits to this argument? And what are the weaknesses that undermine it that I may know intuitively, but I haven't actually thought about, you know, and then you have to, you actually have to dig in and uncover those weaknesses. And if you don't uncover those weaknesses, it's either one of two things. You don't have the, you don't have the skill or the prior knowledge to do it, which means that you need to do more research before you can establish an opinion or somebody has an opinion that's right that you don't like. And that's a hard thing for people to admit. There's a, there's a strong bias for people to believe that what they, what they know is correct. And people don't want to give it up. And we have an entire political system to prove that that is a true thing. But, but that's the important part of philosophy is looking at all these arguments and not dismissing anything out of hand. Looking at it, going through the argument, the Socratic that's exactly it. The Socratic method, which I have em- embraced in such flawed ways in my, in my work and life, but I believe I, uh, the utility, the usefulness of it, because you can see it in a classroom. You can see it in a dialogue with a friend, you know, a former student who's become a colleague you know, uh, on, the, on the microphone. Of, but it takes a lot of work. And then and so people who think, well, you're doing philosophy. I'm out here in the real world. Students hear this all the time from people. Well, it's nice that you're being able to sit there and read books. That's book learning. I'm out here in the real world doing, getting street smart. And as if there's a, as if there's a difference entirely in knowledge, as if there's a, a value in knowledge, my arms are bigger. Therefore, I'm better than you because you're reading a book. No, no, that's just not true. There's a lot of work that goes into reading a book. There's a lot of work that goes beyond reading the book into applying it. And you're applying it in the world. And the world's no less real inside of a, of a studio or inside of a classroom than it is out in the middle of a construction zone in, 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 in a blizzard. It's real because, uh, well, I'm declaring that there's some philosophers say, how do you know? <laughs> right. yeah. But yeah, and I, I, you know, I think that there is, there's definitely an antagonistic view among different sects. You could say blue collar, white collar, whatever the case may be. And um, yeah, I mean, the, really what it comes down to is that learning or, uh, you know, obtaining some kind of knowledge is, is going to, it's always going to be useful, you know? And that's where I like to think of myself as the tardigrade in life. You know, I'm never, I'm never going to accomplish anything great, but I'm going to accomplish a lot of things. I'm going to have a lot of experiences. So, I mean, I've, I've been on both sides of that. You know, I've, I've replaced windows in inner city Rochester and have had to um, stop people with crack addictions from stealing aluminum weather stripping. You know, I've slept in the middle of a field in an army uniform with no tent or sleeping bag when it's 32 degrees outside, getting shot at in the middle of the night. You know, I've, I've released albums in a studio. I'm going for a master's degree. So I'm not saying that I'm ultimately qualified to make distinctions on what is and isn't good knowledge, but 
in my experience, there's never something that I learned where I looked back and thought, I wish I'd never learned that. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's tactile, physical, hard labor, or if it's, you know, abstract, conceptual. Uh, and why would you not say that? I think it's, I guess because of that increase in knowledge, um, not only is it, you know, connecting, everything is connecting in your head to create the human experience, I feel. And the, the wider you cast that net and the more things you're drawing on, the more human you feel. And what does it mean to be human? We still haven't defined that. We'll never define it. We don't know what it means. But you just said, but the more human one feels. So we, we, we have this valid sense of things that this accrual of knowledge, which can be cruel knowledge or it can be a sweet knowledge or anything in between among those poles, but it tells us more about the world first. It tells us more about how we are in the world. It tells us more about how we want to be in the world. And then sleeping outside on the ground, getting shot at in the dark, probably tells you many things yeah. <clears throat> in retrospect. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's human. Yeah, I should definitely um, put a disclaimer in here right now. The shooting's all training exercises. I've never, <laughs> I've never, uh, never been in danger. But um, yeah, so we have one last topic to cover before we get into our last conversation. And that is logic. And that's what we're, we're talking about here is, is um, reasoning. How do we establish what we know? And obviously logic goes hand in hand with epistemology and hand in hand with metaphysics and axia. Everything connects together. Toolboxes, se separate or, or components of the, of the toolbox if you want to be mechanistic. Right. Uh, so what, what would you say about logic? That there are a variety of kinds. That the most, uh, probably the, the formal logic, uh, and I don't even want to begin to touch the more esoteric to me. Uh, mathematical realms of logic. We can go there some, but I, but at the start, let's take formal logic to mean basically what Aristotle was talking about, inductive and deductive. So what it involves in its perhaps simplest sense is premises. Premises are statements that we take as fact. And so premises are mostly uh, declarative things. Uh, that drum has four white heads. There's a box on the refrigerator. Okay. And so with things that we can render epistemologically. So we stack up some premises and then we draw a conclusion, which itself is a premise because it's just another statement. It's just a statement that will take in and embrace those previous statements. Well, and then we have this slightly more formal syllogistic reasoning. Um, so you have three parts, essentially. So two premises and a conclusion. But for, uh, all humans are man. That's a premise. Okay. Well, Socrates is a human. Therefore, Socrates is male. Right. Now, all humans males was a false premise. 
but the way that the so that there are always confusingly sometimes to people first encountering it, there are two two things about logic of the uh, argument. One is the, the statements, and you essentially say if the statements were true, then the conclusion would be true. But in fact, we know <laughs> that, that that wasn't. So the argument's form was right. So you have form, and then you have the actual truth. And, and when you can get into looking at the structure of arguments in those two ways, it can help you back away from all of, as you say, the fractious emotionality that people get into. So deductive argument is a closed system. If the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. Inductive arguments, if the premises are true, the conclusion, if it has a strong relationship with the premises, is probably true, but has the possibility of changing because those premises may not encompass all of the world. Okay, so I know that you just said you, you don't want to talk about it, but it's one of the things I have on my list. The, the one thing that I wanted to talk about is logic was, um, is actually the philosophy of mathematics, and that's numbers and their natural laws as being real or imaginary. And that's a pretty legitimate argument because I, I'm sure that as humans do, like we just said, human biases, it, it's, an, it's a natural thing. You, as soon as you hear a question like, are numbers real or fake? Everybody has an initial leaning one way or the other. Obviously, numbers are invented by people. If there was no people, there would be no numbers. Don't say so obvious. I'm going to keep going. I'm sorry. But, but, <laughs> but on the other hand, you'd have people who would say, well, no, numbers and mathematical laws exist. We're just discovering them because we can look at nature and especially cosmology, like we were talking about before, it's a, it's a very predictable system. And we can say, well, we know when the next, we know when a lunar eclipse will happen 250 years from now because of mathematical formulas. So numbers must be real because we use numbers to predict this will happen and it will happen. So, you know, I, I think that that's, that's an interesting part of logic is trying to, do, trying to figure out if, um, numbers or mathematical principles are something that humans invented, or is it something that is an actual built into the universe itself? Universe. Which is what Carl Sagan uh, asserted a number of ways, including in his uh, in in his science fiction novel. Um, he's that that essentially the universe would communicate to us through numbers, and people have argued that the universe is already communicating with us through numbers. There's an ism that comes up here. It's called re realism. Not the way you might expect realism. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think you're probably aware of it, but generally I think sometimes people aren't. So realism asserts the thing that you mentioned before. Things exist whether we experience them or not. And, and, and from the viewpoint of philosophical realism, numbers are there. Now, the, the debate is whether they have substance uh, object status or they are there, I say simply, as a con concept. So conceptually or objectively outside of one's own internal apparatus can be applied not to just numbers, but many other things. So I don't mind that we've gone to numbers. I just don't so well with them. <laughs> <laughs> It seems like 
um, mathematics is really just a different language, you know, because it has the same problems that we were talking about with language before where, you know, it, it's a crude system because it can't express, we can't, or at least we can't yet use it to express all the things that we see. But at the same time, it can express things that we can't see or can't imagine because it's very a very elegant, very complex thing. And lots of times those numbers will have different meanings or different consequences as a result of how an equation is is done. So it's almost like math is a different language, but yeah, it comes back to we're using language to, you know, define things that we are observing, that we're, you know, we're, we're taking our sensory input and we're trying to express it through a, a limited medium. It's almost like mathematics is doing the same thing, but just in a different aspect. Yeah, I think, I, I, certainly. I had a marvelous math teacher in high school. She said two things to me that always stayed with me. One is what you just said, which is math is a language and, and, and that math is uh, elegant. Mm. Yeah. All right, so. Let's move on to the last section of the podcast, which is our question. And you and I each have some, some bullet points that we have not discussed, and we'll, we'll just go into it. So, how do the categories of philosophy relate to making us human or help us think about what it means to be human? My first point that I have written down was that um, the categories of philosophy relate to making us human because we never see um, the fundamentals is actually existing. Fundamentals are non-existent and something is always made up of something else. And I think that that is where, that's the origin of philosophy, you know, is that the beginning of people, you know, organizing knowledge, the first step to that organization is creating categories, defining what this is and that is. But then like we attempted to do with love until we were quickly taken off on a different tangent. <laughs> you, you take something and you put in a category, but then you break that down into a different category and a different category and a different category. And that, that's eventually, you get down to such levels that you, you, can't, you can't find new categories. And to me, I think that's, that's what, that's how philosophy makes us human because animals can differentiate that. There's, there's a specific type of slug and his, he only has one nerve in his body and that nerve tells him whether he's hungry or whether he's full. And so he just eats or stops eating. And so even he's able to identify categories. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. But I think humans, are separated by being able to take that and get to a point where we can no longer categorize and then use our imaginations, use our prior knowledge to philosophize about what else is out there. Okay. So I'm going to riff on that a bit because I like jazz. And you just caused me a, a, a fresh thought that's not a fresh thought, but in a fresh way. So. Language philosophy talks about atomistic language. And with, as with other things, as you said, reducing it down to the most particulate parts. 
And sometimes, if you, well, if you, I'm just going to pull all of this together. You were talking about cannibalism, but this sort of not quite cannibalism, but but the elements of the guitar, the the constituent pieces. If you get down to, if not the quantum level, but you get down to the, the atomistic level <clears throat> about human beings, we look at our genes. For all the differences that people want to make about race and, and gender identity and, and all the rest, at the level of our very physical, underwritten texture, we have the same genes. We have the code. We are, we are written mathematics. We are words written in a code. And, and so if one were to look at that and say, so what is the deal here? Can we, can we recognize that? Can we really come to know from that constituent level and then move back up through? So as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Philosophy helps us think freshly about being human. So the next thing, which is, it, it goes off the first thing. It's essentially questions and discoveries always lead to more questions. Never has anybody discovered something and then said, well, this is the end of the thing. This is it now. You know, it's not. And I think that's, again, part of what makes us human, how philosophy helps make us human. It's because you can look in nature and see that there's other things that have ends. Like for the spider that we were talking about earlier, the, the, the end of the spider is to create new spiders. It creates new spiders. Its service, its purpose has been served. And it sacrifices itself to continue that, that line. But humans are a lot more complex than that. <clears throat> you know, it's not, it's not just as simple as I have a child, I wait till the child is an adult, and then I die. That doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, a lot of adults go on to live some of their most um, intellectually productive years after that point, you know, because you were so busy or so concerned with um, making a living or developing a career or raising a child that you're so busy in those early years that you didn't have time to actually, you know, develop new interests or hobbies or develop these social groups or do these things you do. You see a lot of people in retirement and the joke is that, you know, people are much more busy after they've retired than they were before because, but now they're doing things that they, that they wanted to do, you know? And so I think that that's another way that philosophy helps us be human is you, you always have a goal to achieve or questions to answer or things to discover. But then when you get there, there's never an end point. There's always something more. And usually if you answer a question, it raises three or four more questions, you know, bigger, more things. So Socrates was quite adamant, according to Plato, in saying time and time again that he, one thing, the only thing that he knew was that he knew nothing. And one can say, oh, well, he was being disingenuous or coy. I don't, I don't think so. I think that was the essence, of course, because we do, we, we ask one question, we learn something from the question, that opens up 15 more questions, which is why it is so, you know, I went to college and never left, basically. So I, 
even when I taught in high school, junior high school, I was still working on a second master's degree. So I, I found my place, not because it's a safe little place. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's that it's, you are always being challenged or challenging yourself to ask fresh things, either from the classroom, from life experience, whatever it happens to be. And, and so, again, riffing from what you said, uh, we can anticipate an end for ourselves. We don't want to. We know that we all will have an end. In that sense, back to the words, words meaning many things. So we can have a causal uh, time-space end, we think. We think. And this is going to get, in episode three, we're going to get into this. But, but, we, but the end, as in the, the purpose, doesn't necessarily end with us because the chances are that if we've been having the kind of life we hope, then, then the, the, our purpose is not singularly uh, disattached from everyone else. We have shared purposes, not every purpose, but some, and, the, and the, those purposes will continue. And, and then one perhaps goes on in memory, but one doesn't live one's life to hope to be remembered. I don't think. I mean, some, I think some people do, but I, I don't think, I don't find that compelling. I don't find that, that that's not interesting. So, the, so philosophy helps us keep growing, if, if not physically, you know, but, but challenging ourselves. Our brains don't have to just shut down. If, if uh, a tragic, awful, the, the nature of the biological entity that we are, disease, causes us to lose part of ourselves. And I've seen that, but I'm sure you have to very closely. That's devastating. And yet, the life, the lives around the person who has been lost can go a number of ways. Um, you know, I, I, I have very, very personally, my mom uh, died. Um, she was experiencing dementia, um, COPD, my, along with it. My father was two years older than she. He just turned 81. He could have shut down. Many people do. <laughs> my dad started getting back into exercising. He was a mechanic his whole life. He's, he's, he, he drives uh, around the, the village he lives in. He, he visits people. He takes them cookies. He listens to conversations. He calls and we call and we chat. We work together outside sometimes. And, I, and, I, and he started teaching me uh, a, a number of weeks back. I'm going to go back to it and do it. That's my own schedule, not his. Accordion. He played accordion when he was a young man. He played banjo when he was a young man. I'm beginning to learn these. I knew those things, but I never really learned. And so I was just taking a lesson with him. It's aliveness. Humanity is a, is, is aliveness. There's an unpredictability unless we uh, squirrel toward the, the safe corners and just want everything to be predictable. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's when we really shut down. Um, so. Yeah, that's, I'm, I think that's the struggle of being human is, you know, you're, cause you're burdened with that knowledge. Like you said, that, and it might not be true. We'll get into it in episode three that we have an end. You know, we, uh, we understand death. We know how that works. And, uh, yeah, you know, finding some, some kind of meaning outside of just, you know, reproducing or surviving the longest or, or doing that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you know, it's just... That's compelling. Yeah. Finding that meaning. Yeah. All right. So, 
I'll cover my last, my last point here. And that is individual perspective is limiting and uncertain. And it causes us to question our senses, which leads to the development of philosophical fields, which are all connected by observation. So philosophy and how it helps us think about humanity is it comes from that uncertainty. Like we were just like you're we just talking about, you know, animals probably don't experience this, but at, at some point we think to ourselves, how do I know that what I'm seeing is actually there? How do I know what I'm hearing is actually there? Um, you know, and that I think that questioning of the senses, because I, you know, that's all we have to go by. You know, like like we said earlier in the episode, there's just three pounds of meat in your head, and that's that's what you are. You know, and the universe. Yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> there's no. What you hear, what you see, what you feel, all these things are pretty crude tools. I have no sense of smell, so I don't know. I did, <laughs> that one doesn't even apply for me. But um, yeah, and then at some point, realizing that this is different, I, the one that fascinates me is color. And so I remember being younger and my, I'd argue with my whole family. All four of them thought our house was tan. I knew our house was gray. You know, it's like, and that's a perfect sort of analogy for all of life, all of philosophical topics, all that is, where does gray end and tan start? Where does blue end and green start? These are just categories and they don't really exist. You know, it's all it, blue and green, you know, it's what, what is, and Beyond that, what causes somebody to have a preference for a favorite color? What, what's the purpose? Man? And there are some scientific reasons behind why people, but nobody has the same favorite color. So what are the reasons for that? You know, So it's this, this idea of individual perspective and the ability to understand that there are other perspectives outside your own and then grappling with those discrepancies and trying to come to some sort of idea about what actually is there, you know, what is actually, what actually exists, what is being, you know, it's, it's all part of that same question. We've gone, we've gone pretty far. I don't think that our other episodes will be quite this long. You know, I hope that everybody enjoyed it. You know, I hope you got a, an idea for the flavor of what we're trying to do. We just want to thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off of my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep talking.